today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. The Kokanee Grope, that's what they're calling it now. The Kokanee, every, every scandal or whatever has to have a name. This one has become the Kokanee Grope. Uh, you know what it's all about by now. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau back in 2000 was in BC for a party and in the wake of that party, a small newspaper out there printed an editorial in which the female reporter who had been representing that paper and the National Post said that the not yet in politics, he wasn't then in politics, but that the son of Prime Minister Trudeau once upon a time had touched her, had groped her. Had I don't think the word grope was in there, but touched her in a way that was uncomfortable. It has now come back to light and has now been picked up by the international press and is getting seemingly more and more steam. After initially saying that he had remembered no, this was his word, negative interactions, the prime minister yesterday said, well, he and the reporter may have just had a different experience. And he also acknowledged that he had apologized to her way back then. Um, it's a tangled little web that's getting more tangled. Michael Tobe is a Troy Media syndicated columnist, a Washington Times contributor. He joins us now. Michael, how are you today? I'm good, Scott. How are you? I'm good. Uh, maybe, I don't know if that's too much of an overstatement, but it does seem like it's a bit of a tangled web that is getting more and more tangled here. Yes, what a tangled web we weave. Exactly. You're absolutely right, and I think that actually explains it quite well. I think the real problem is, and obviously some of your listeners already know it, so we don't have to go through every single detail, But the problem is that this narrative from this 18-year-old story has been changing a fair bit in, let's say, the last week or so, to the point that whereas yesterday it's starting to move in directions that I think that if you put yourself in the shoes of liberal spin doctors or political operatives, if you'd like, it's probably giving them massive headaches because the prime minister is either veering off script or he's creating his own script, which... I think is actually really bad and just creates more sensational news than anything. Like, here's one of the easiest examples is, as we know, he met with Premier Doug Ford yesterday and after the whole tut-tut session about the difference between immigration and asylum seekers, which was, which was so badly handled by the Prime Minister that it's a completely separate issue. Here's, what, here's part of what he said when he was asked by a reporter to either discuss or clarify the whole groping allegations way back in 2000. Quoting directly, often a man experiences an interaction as being benign or not inappropriate, and a woman, particularly in a professional context, can experience it differently. And we have to respect that and reflect on that. This is a man who claims to be a male feminist, and he is now directly stating that various interactions between men and women can be interpreted differently, not via the person interpreting differently. This is the key, the gender interpreting it differently. If, if you were sitting in the prime minister's office or in any liberal cabinet office right now, you would be pulling out your hair because that is exactly what you don't want to answer with. And the problem is that, unfortunately, he's just getting to the point now where you have a script from the prime minister's office claiming that he doesn't remember or doesn't think there were, more specifically, any negative interactions to statements like this, to the point that he basically says he now doesn't really remember the episode at all, but kind of alluded to the fact, and this is just me talking, that he apologized because she seemed distressed or unhappy about the situation. I mean, you look at all of this, Scott, and you put it all together, put partisanship aside, this looks really, really bad on our prime minister and on our national leader. Well, it does, 
Yeah. And it doesn't mean he's going to lose his job no. over it, but this is really horrible. Well, and Michael, doing. we probably, may, I, I may be wrong here, but we may not even be talking about something that's 18 years old and that's relatively minor, it seems, on the grand scope of things. We might even not be talking about this if, quite frankly, if Justin Trudeau hadn't been quite so sanctimonious and quite so pious when it was other people who were in this position. Of course. And... But when you make that kind of bed and lay that kind of foundation, and then it comes back on you, suddenly the rules aren't quite so clear. And that's where this thing, if, if he had never, if he hadn't been quite so direct with all these other ones, this probably never even amounts to anything. Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you look back at the apology that's contained in the 18-year-old editorial, which some reports have said, and it's unconfirmed as of right now, it may be the unnamed reporter who either wrote the whole editorial or participated in some fashion, but, you know, we'll just leave that aside. What is directly said in the editorial is that he sort of, you know, he apologized for his actions and claiming that if she hadn't been working for a national newspaper, he wouldn't have approached her in said fashion. That's just me, you know, paraphrasing a little bit. But, but it's, that's it good matter? enough. That's close. <laughs> yeah, I know. But what does it matter whether she worked for a national newspaper, like the National Post, for example, or a local paper like the Creston Advance, where she was employed and that's where the editorial ran? It's meaningless. If she was there in whatever capacity, either as a reporter or just someone who went to the Kokanee Festival to enjoy some time with family, friends, because it is an annual event out in B.C., it's a preposterous statement that he made 18 years ago when it all finally got revealed, first by uh, Frank Magazine way back in April, although most people didn't see it, and then by political commentator Warren Kinsella reproducing it based on the fact that he had been provided it with apparently an unnamed member of parliament. I presume it's a conservative. I don't know for sure, and I don't know who the person is. Regardless, the fact is that people looked at that and said, well, that's a preposterous apology to make in the first place. And he has just created more and more layers on top of it. So your analysis is quite right. It's basically the prime minister's actions and the way he has handled this controversy that has allowed this particular story to stay in the news cycle much longer than it ever really had to in the first place. Well, and you said that as his story has kind of changed, and again, this is where it kind of gets really interesting to me, is because when he started up, when he started off, and the first thing that was said, and it first came out of the Prime Minister's office, and then he, when he was approached, I think by Canadian Press, right, uh, gave the basically the same answer, and he used that no negative interaction phrase. And quite frankly, I think most people hearing that, even his supporters went, oh, that kind of sounds way too Bill Clinton-esque, lawyered up, let's parse yes. the language kind of thing here. That's not what we want Justin Trudeau, the feminist prime minister, to say. <laughs> we yes, want him exactly. to say, no, it didn't happen. Right. But now he's in with this. Yesterday, the idea, again, that he says that, well, we may have a different interpretation. Yeah. Here's where, again, and I, I, I was thinking back to some of the cases that he's had to deal with. And two, one of the cases was two MPs that had a sexual relationship with another woman. And not to get into too graphic details, but they said they went to her room at her invitation. Yep. She never said no. She right. provided them with condoms. And mm. then at the end, they said, well, I never gave my explicit permission. And then they were kicked out of caucus. And I'm thinking, wait, is that not the definition of may have had a different interpretation? I mean, different scale, but it's the same answer. I'm thinking, how could you mm -hmm. kick them out? And then you say, well, this is a fine excuse. Well, you're right. I mean, you're right. It is a different scale, the example that you produce, but it's a different set of standards that he actually has for his own caucus members. And you're right. A couple of them were 
kicked out, as I understand it, it was with two unnamed NDP female members who were working somewhere in offices or in some capacity for the party. I mean, it's never been fully determined, but he kicked, obviously, two of them out. Plus, as well, we have a former minister, Kent Herr, who was kicked out also for issues of sexual harassment, which go back quite a number of years. Yet, when the prime minister is faced with something, which obviously may not be anywhere near the same as what we've discussed in the past with other people, and may be very, very different than what he's had to deal with with caucus members more recently in the past few years. I mean, he's just creating a standard for himself versus everyone else. And I think a lot of people, including a lot of liberals, because if you actually look, the usual liberal commentators or pundits, like me, you know, I'm a conservative, but in the same world, who would speak out immediately about something like this, are pretty silent right now, Scott. And the reason is they are not getting involved in this battle. They realize that it has been scripted out very poorly. The statement about negative interactions, which came directly from the prime minister's office, which means it was a crafted response, obviously didn't fulfill or didn't satisfy a lot of Canadians. And now, based on what he said at Queen's Park the other day, I think he's just making it worse for himself. And while liberals would like this story to go away, it's not going to leave in a hurry. There's another concern here, quite frankly, and that is uh, we can debate all day the Me Too movement and the pros and the cons and the benefits and the downsides of how that has been carried right. out and how that's gone forward. However, I think that most people would argue uh, the general concept is it's a good thing that women are hopefully being able to feel safer and that men are being called us. So generally, that's fine. But now you have a prime minister, again, maybe different levels, but is providing future excuses for people to say, well, yeah, but if this happens, use this excuse. If this happens, well, this is the excuse that you're allowed to use. I think it has an effect of undoing some of the things that we've seen as benefits. Yeah, I agree. You're absolutely right. And look, it would have been easier if he had come out right at the very front and said something, I don't know, I'm just coming up at the top of my head, something very easy going like, you know, my interaction with this woman, whoever she is, you know, was poorly thought out. It was handled improperly. I apologize to her at the time. I'm very sorry. I learned an important lesson from it, and I moved on, and I did better, or something to that effect. I think that would have stopped the story for the most part. Sure, the opposition parties would have continued to grumble and try to score a few points here and there, but it wouldn't have had the impact that it's had, shall we say, the last few weeks when the international press started to capture it, and more and more Canadian publications started to report on it, especially during the Canada Day long weekend, when they realized that a lot of these things that they either didn't want to discuss or preferred not to get into in their stories, and that can be in obviously print, radio, or TV, they finally realized, you know what, everyone else is moving ahead. We've got to start doing the same thing, too. And now they're finding that this story is just all over the place. And you're right, it's just a long circle. We can go over this many, many times. The end result is that Justin Trudeau has handled this about as miserably as anything he has done as prime minister. And even his own handlers are remaining quiet, which means that I think they're just hoping to God that this story somehow disappears. But if Trudeau continues to change the narrative, even adjust it just a little bit, it's not going anywhere. And in fact, if anything, the opposition parties will ramp up their attacks on the prime minister because they've got him back into a corner very easily. And even if this unnamed female reporter never reveals her identity, and right now it appears she doesn't want to, and that's perfectly fine, 
Justin Trudeau is going to get caught up in the web that he basically created for a good reason, obviously, because the Me Too movement, as you said, has a lot of positive benefits. But now he's getting caught up in something because he's just, he, whether he's telling the truth or not, it's a sort of a he said, she said scenario. He just doesn't look good, and it doesn't look good in general when you keep changing the story all the time. Michael, we know, we got just a couple of minutes left here, but we know uh, history tells us that politicians occasionally find themselves in trouble, not just necessarily any politician of any political stripe. We know it happens. Yep. And so there is a chance, maybe a good chance, that somewhere down the road, one of Prime Minister Trudeau's liberal MPs, members of caucus, whatever else, could find themselves in another situation where they have to be spoken to or something happens. Sure. What can, can he do anything about that now? Or is his credibility because of this put him in a spot where if, unless it's egregious, if it's something like some of the ones we've seen, can he now, does he have any credibility to do anything about that? Well, it's a bit of a catch-22. He has no choice. He has to get involved in it as a leader of the party, not just prime minister of the country. He leads his party caucus. He has to be involved. But his reputation is right now anyway, is badly shattered because of what he's doing here with his own issue. So no matter what he does, if another, shall we say, Kent Hare-like incident comes up with another party member or, you know, God forbid, another minister, it's good. he has to deal with it. People around him are going to have to deal with it. But the impact is not going to be anywhere near as strong as it was when, as opposition leader, he threw out two members of his party caucus who were accused of sexual harassment. So, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. His reputation is getting tarnished by the day because of this. So irrespective of the fact that he may be faced with incidents like this, again, it's not going to have the the strength of impact as it would have before because his character or his persona, if you like, it just isn't the same as it was, say, two, three weeks ago. And if it was someone across the aisle where normally a guy in his position with his feminist credentials could make hay with this politically... If he stands up now or someone from his party stands up to accuse a conservative or an NDP of misbehavior, all you're doing is basically putting out the welcome mat to say, fine, tee off on our prime minister. Yes, pretty much. And, And that's the problem that I think that a lot of liberal spin doctors right now have. You know, the nature of a spin doctor, and I am one on the conservative side, so I know how it operates, is that you basically are confronted with an issue or a problem and you have to make it go away, which means you have to basically use your, your intelligence, your wits, your experience, and whatever, whatnot, to just sort of magically change the story, adjust the narrative, and get rid of it as, as soon as possible. The problem is that what I'm seeing here is that the Prime Minister's office, which is full of spin doctors, and other liberals are probably trying their best to do this, even though the excuses that they've made for the prime minister are really not that strong they're just trying to do anything that kind of makes sense at this point um i think they realize that each time justin trudeau falls into another hole or enters another pitfall so to speak it makes it harder and harder for them to get rid of this thing and just basically try to move the canadian mindset to another issue as of right now even though the liberals are keep saying you know it's done it's over with he's apologized He really hasn't apologized. That's the whole key. His apology has been half-hearted at best or basically muted at worst. And I think he's just making himself worse and worse when he actually speaks out. And this, unfortunately, is a problem with some politicians. You know, there's this whole theory of the invisible leash that you put on certain politicians because you worry about what happens to them when there's a microphone in front of their face and they have to talk. This happened in the United States, for example, 
many times in the past with former Vice President Joe Biden, who was the VP for yep. Barack Obama. Yep. So unfortunately, this is a case in this case where the leader of the country and the leader of the party has to be on an invisible leash. But look what happens when they have to let go. I mean, what happened in Queen's Park could be replicated or repeated on a regular basis. And God knows where the story will go from there. Well, and we got to run, but uh, there's other two other things involved here. One, it's the summer, and there's not a lot to talk about, so this keeps going. And True. two, um, well, I can't remember what the second one was now. If I've, oh, we don't have any sex scandals in Canada, even though this is minor. We never have sex scandals, so this is you know as good as it's going to get for us if you're interested in that kind of thing. So, uh, Michael Tobe, syndicated columnist, thanks so much for the time. Appreciate it today. My pleasure. Have a good weekend. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Here is a little splash of cold water in the meantime for those parents out there listening, grandparents too. You might want to pass this on to the parents. Uh, and by the way, when I talk about this, I'm including myself in this category because I am an offender in this realm. So I'm not pointing the finger only outwards. It's, uh, believe me, there's some introspection going on with this next topic. A new study says parents who spend too much time on their cell phones are more likely to have children with behavioral problems. Uh, researchers call the interruptions uh, in interactions with their children because their phone rang or buzz, whatever. They call those technoference. That you're talking to your kid and suddenly bzz, the buzzer, you know, the t- text comes in and you stop talking to your kid and you look down and the phone has taken priority. The more technoference there was, the study says, the more behavioral issues were reported. They went hand in hand, more of one, more of the other. Now, for some reason, the links were higher with mothers than with fathers. I'm not really sure why that is. I don't know if my next guest will know that, but regardless, the question, the bigger question is, why is the link between, and maybe it's, maybe it's obvious, I don't know, but why the link between looking at your phone, paying attention to your phone and your kids misbehaving? Dr. Richard Amaral is a retired psychologist who joins us now. Doctor, thanks for doing this today. Hey, you're welcome, Scott. And uh, I'm... As I was going to say, I'm still active, not retired. Not oh, yet. oh, pardon me. Okay. Uh, no, I uh, registered. Registered. You know what? Register. Autocorrect. Love autocorrect, isn't it? You know, usually autocorrect only ends up spelling dirty words when you write it in wrong. But uh, today it was this one. Uh, I can understand that a parent modeling a behavior could lead to a child taking up that same behavior. That's something we've, I think, mm. accepted for years and years and years, that if a parent shows one behavior, the kid will probably do that. Why would a child misbehave, though, because mom or dad is on the phone? Yeah, um, it's a great topic, and there's so many, I think, negative consequences to you know overusing one's cell phone. But one of the thoughts I had regarding this specifically probably has to do with you know the principles of learning. And and one of the examples I could think of is oftentimes, you know, like in, in grade schools when a kid gets down to the principal's office and maybe the parents got to come in or parents get a call, uh, a lot of times kids, you know, that kind of behavior, you know, that kind of attention from the parents can be reinforcing. You know, it's a whole idea of negative attention is better than no attention at all. And w- when you apply that in the context of the cell phone use, you could see that, you know, when the, if the child is looking for attention from the parent, but the parent is just so distracted and focused on the telephone, then that means the child needs to sort of overact or needs to misbehave a little more in order to get that attention. Because now there's a competition between the attention of the parent and the attention and the parents, you know, focus on the phone. 
So the child's competing for that attention. It is, uh, and I guess that's not really new, is it? I mean, the phone is a newer thing. The smartphone is a newer thing. But this would have been, we might have talked about this years ago if mom was talking on the phone or dad was watching TV or whatever you were doing. It's not, it's, is it really different or is it just a different device? No, I think that's a good example, right? I, uh, I remember myself and I remember my mom often yelling with her friends because when she got on the phone, it seems that's when, when my brothers and I would misbehave the most. <laughs> but I guess... I, guess I, know, I know the story. It's true. Yeah, Quiet! I'm on the phone! <laughs> I see it with my own kids. But I think the difference here is that the cell phone is everywhere. Mm. Whereas back in the day, you know, it was... You would, you know, with your parents were, um, our parents were only connected by as long as the cord was. <laughs> That's true. On that, you know, on the touchstone or the rotary dial phone. But today, you know, that cell phone is anywhere and everywhere. So if the parent says, let's go for a nice walk in the park, or let's go hang out at the park, or let's just go walk to the store, and they walk, and then the cell phone goes off, or the notification goes off. So suddenly, you know, the child now is competing with, you know, in different environments. Mm. And not just that. You can't escape. You can't escape. You can't escape. That's right. It's everywhere. And secondly, is that what gets a parent's attention, you know, and I'm guilty of this too, it's it's not so much a phone conversation, but it's that email or it's that Uh from a text message. You're right. Or it's, you know, or it's someone responding to an ad you put on and, and you want to reply to it right away. What is shocking to me about this, and not so much, I guess, the misbehavior because of the points you just made. It makes sense why a child would react, especially a younger child. I'm going to outdo whatever whatever your attention is to the phone. I'm going to be bigger than that, so you have to pay attention to me. But what I was shocked at looking at this study is that only 40% of mothers and 32% of fathers in the study reported having any kind of what they would describe as a phone addiction. I bet you that if you followed them, that number is double or triple in some cases almost. That's right. That's right. And I think, um, you know, I think it's in terms of the word, you know, being addiction, being attached to the phone, there's still more research that needs to be done. But I do know that the United Nations, for example, they're now considering gaming disorder or Mm. um, so already now we're focusing on the sort of the digital addictions. Um, and it'll only be a few more years before they include cell phone use onto that. But you're right, it's underreported. I mean, I think a lot of people just don't know the, the criteria. Could it, that be part of the problem, Doctor? Could that be part of the problem that we don't, that so many people don't even realize how much they're doing it, which probably goes to how much they really are doing it? That's right. That's right. It's just sort of second, you know, I, I guess not even second nature. It's just like, it's just part of, you know, we, we lose track. I think the last statistic I heard was something about 300. Um, we look at our phone over 300 times per day. And, um, and then that's just a staggering number, you know, considering that we're only awake maybe 12 or 13 hours a day. <laughs> I, I, I suppose the simple answer is simply to put your phone down Although, uh, harder said than done. Well, I think there are a few things you can do. I think not. number one is, you know, putting the phone down and, and, and you know, shutting off notifications. Um, you know, we get notified when we have maybe someone has written on a Facebook feed or Twitter 
texting or an Instagram or whatever, and uh, as well as text messages, well, you can sort of mute those things. Oh, but you, you yeah. know that when you just said that, there are people who broke into a cold <laughs> sweat at the thought that I will be out of contact with somebody. That text that's going to come in that will change my life forever, I'm going to miss it for five minutes. And I, oh. I'm, I'm as guilty as the next person, believe me. I'm not, I'm not poking fun at anyone else because I'm the same way. No, We've become Pavlovian almost with that ding. That's right. That is, and that's a great, yeah, a great reference is, you know, the, the dog and the thing. But, you know, I mean, these big, these companies that create a lot of these social media platforms, they hire a lot of psychologists. They look at, you know, what are the kinds of colors that people respond best to. And when, you know, when they pick up their device and log into our website, where should we place the notifications about how many people liked a comment they said should it be in the upper right hand corner in the lower left hand corner all these things like that are all strategically placed because they really want us to stay with their on their platform your they colleagues have all jumped to the dark side <laughs> That's right i'm afraid so uh, dr richard amaral registered not retired psychologist <laughs> Although someday, you know, you may have time to spend more time on your phone down the road. Who knows? That's right. <laughs> uh, doctor, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. Hey, you're welcome, Scott. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. If you watch Netflix, and who doesn't watch Netflix? I don't think I know anybody now who doesn't have Netflix. Not many, anyway. If you watch Netflix, you have my next guest to thank, in part, anyway for your viewing experience. He's not the the developer of the country. He doesn't direct movies. However, he helped develop the software and the equipment and the ways so you can watch your shows on Netflix seamlessly and without glitches and stalls and annoying pauses, which we all know when we watch something on our computer and things get slow, it drives us bananas. Tim Brecht is an associate professor of computer science at the University of Waterloo. He joins me now. Dr. Breck, thanks for doing this today. Oh, well, thanks for having me. I was watching, uh, so there's a show on Netflix now that I've gotten into. It's a French show, doesn't really matter. It's called The Forest. Anyway, I'm watching The Forest last night, and I'm thinking, as I knew you were coming on today, I have you, par- partially anyway, to thank for the fact that I can watch this and not drive myself nuts with constant delays and stalls and freezing. So... That's got to be a cool thing when people are watching and you go, yeah, you know what? I had something to do with the fact that this has taken off and become such a big deal. Yeah, it's pretty exciting to, uh, to see the research that we've done put into practice and being used by millions of people all over the world. So let's, as much as we can in non-computer terms, because <laughs> we, not all of us speak computer, um, right. explain what exactly it is that you did that eventually was able to be translated into use in Netflix and other p- things like that. Right. So, so at a high level, the idea is that each Netflix server machine, which is a, a, a device in the Internet somewhere that services the video that you're watching, each of those is capable of servicing maybe, say, 500 users, for an example. And our work was to try to make it more efficient so that we could serve more users or to serve them better. And so, so that at a high level is what we've, we've, our goal was, and we've been successful. And to kind of give you a sense of the technology behind it, um, what we were able to recognize is that each of the requests coming in from these 500 different users would be for a small piece of data. And those small pieces of data were getting interleaved, and that made things slow. 
so an analogy that you could think of is, imagine going to the grocery store and buying food for one day. Over the course of the week, lots of time is spent driving back and forth. But if you know what you're going to eat for the whole week and you can plan ahead, then you can make one trip and bring a whole bunch of food back. Okay, so it would make sense to me, logically to me, and it sounds like my logic is poor then, it would make logical sense to say the faster way for me to be able to get data from Netflix system to mine is bit by bit, piece by piece. You're saying it's the opposite of that. You want to be able to dump basically all the movie onto the home computer or home TV at once. Yeah, it's, it's, it's close to that. It's because what happens is the, the server machine has to pull it off of the disk drive. And so the analogy I'm using is off of the disk drive, we're going to, what we do is we pull larger chunks, and those larger chunks are more efficient coming from the disk drive, which allows us to get them to you and your home faster and better. Did I understand you correctly? Maybe I didn't. Did I understand correctly that you says that every, uh, every Netflix movie is on its own server so that every time someone goes to that, they're diving into that one machine? Yeah, they have, they have servers all over the world, and there are multiple copies of, of all the movies on, all, on many, many of these servers. And so they have algorithms that when you click play, it makes a decision about which server is maybe close to you and which will give you the best quality of experience. Now, I was reading while preparing for this, I was reading that there was a study done at some point that if someone is on their computer or on Netflix or wherever else, and they go to download a movie or a whatever they're doing, mm-hmm. if it takes longer than two seconds for it to load, people started to bail on it. Now, my initial reaction is that says something terrible about us as a species that we're <laughs> that impatient. <laughs> Nonetheless, uh, for you, you're looking at this then and other people doing what you're doing saying, okay, now how do we fix this? How do we make this happen faster so people aren't bailing, I guess. Exactly. Yeah. Like, so, so if it, it, and, and it's like you say, it's amazing that people are that impatient, but it's true. And, <laughs> and uh, companies like Amazon, they know that even say 200, like, like say uh, about two tenths of a second is, is quite a long time for them. And two tenths of a second can cost them lots of money because people are impatient and they just leave the, the website. Again, I, I, I suddenly feel badly for our species that we're, that, that, that's where we are now. You know, once upon a time, it would take you, you know, half a day to drive across town. Now, if we don't have something in two tenths of a second, we're, uh, we're, we're saying no thank you. Right. But, yeah. You know, we used to walk to Blockbuster to get a video. Right? Oh, you know, and how long ago was that? 10 years, maybe? Yeah, and it maybe. seems like it's the ancient days now, like they were, when we were doing it on horse and carriage. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. You did not start, as I understand, the, the initial uh, study for this and the, the work on this wasn't started necessarily for Netflix. So you were doing this for something else, correct? That eventually you realized this could be applied there? Correct, yeah. So, so it was really for ordinary web services. So it was in the late 1990s, and what was happening was a, a website like CNN.com, what would happen to them is there would be a, a, a hot news item, and everybody would go in the world would try to go to CNN to find out, well, what actually happened? And they were finding that their servers would get overloaded and they could get no response to anybody. And so the work that I started out with was initially trying to make ordinary web servers back in, you know, quite a long time ago, ordinary web servers fast. And then eventually what happened is a student uh, came to me, and he, uh, a former student who had worked on that kind of project said, you know, they're now using these web servers for video. And, and we both realized that the video is a very, very different uh, beast than what we were working on. Uh, and, and the big thing is that it gets service from hard drives, which are slow, 
And the next thing is that it's about a thousand times bigger than the servicing, the, the, the request that we've been servicing. Yeah, and I was so going to, yeah, well, let me jump in because I was going to say that yeah. because to go on to a CNN or whatever story, I, I, I don't know how much actual uh, data has to be trans- transferred to your computer for a, a story just to pop up. But when you're talking it's about a movie, small. yeah, when you're talking about a movie in 4K now, that is an immense amount of data that is being pumped into your home. Correct. And, and so our, our, our insight was first, wait, the, all the work that we and others have been doing to make web services faster hadn't really concentrated on that kind of workload, on, on that kind of uh, request. And so we decided to look into that, and we discovered that, wow, the web servers, including ours, a, a version that we had built, don't do very well on that kind of uh, request. And so then we embarked on a, on a quest to try to figure out why and to improve that. And then eventually that led us to contact Netflix and see if it w- could be applied in their space. Would, I be, would it be a fair guess that along the way there probably were a lot of other, not just you, but there were a lot of other people looking at this saying, how do we do this? And uh, clearly you can't upgrade all the infrastructure that people have. We can't make the wires going into our homes or the Wi-Fi or anything else much, much gigantically bigger. So th- there must have been other people, though, trying to solve this similar problem. Right. Um, so, so what originally happened was, was that people actually designed very fancy protocols for, this is the way the machines talk to each other, uh, for uh, your client's device, the, the device that you would watch the video on, and a server device. So both of these end pieces had to run this fancy software. And at some point, the industry decided that's too much work and it doesn't work very well. And they, they kind of threw that away and said, hey, wait, why don't we try these web servers, which are prevalent and easy to run, and, and we'll just build a, a slightly smart, smarter client. And, and so the, the whole industry moved very quickly in that direction. So just so I understand, does what you, when you're doing this now, when you're having to move huge amounts of data into a home TV or a home box or whatever else to be able to watch, most people I think today understand like a zip file where it's a bigger file that gets reduced down so it can be sent over an email. or whatever. Is it that kind of thing? Does it reduce the amount somehow and then it expands again when it gets to your home computer or how does it work? Right. So, so all of the data that you will get sent will be compressed as much as it can and it gets decompressed. But, but that wasn't really sort of the work that we did. It was really around trying to make it more efficient to service a whole bunch of people at the same time. And, and the insight was really for us that instead of asking for these smaller chunks, uh, we realized that what was happening is that every user kind of watches most of the video from the start to the end. And so if we could predict ahead of time what the user was going to be looking for and watching, uh, which was pretty easy if you're watching a TV show, you know, after the first five minutes, you're probably going to watch the next five minutes, we could do what's, what's called prefetching. So we would go ahead and we'd say, look, they didn't ask for this yet, but let's get it because they're probably going to use it. So the analogy would be, uh, so if you go to the grocery store, if, if you don't know what you're going to have the, the next day, you can't buy the next day's groceries. But if you kind of know what you're going to have the next day or you can predict what you're going to have the next day, you can buy two days' worth of groceries and you don't have to go back to the store again. It's just more efficient. You mentioned Amazon. You mentioned some others. Do others use this same technology or similar technology or is this kind of unique to Netflix? Um, I'm guessing that it's fairly unique to Netflix because it, it, it hasn't been sort of, it, it, it's relatively new ideas, and so I, I'm guessing that it hasn't spread that much. Um, and it's, it's, it's predominantly for video. I, I think it would work for other large files, but I, as far as I know, they're, they're the, the main ones who are using this. But, but it, it could be used by, by many others. 
Yeah, because I, I, I can tell you that I've rarely, if ever, had any glitches with Netflix, but I go on YouTube, for example, and it freezes up. Uh, freezes. It slows down. It catches a little bit every once in a while. It, it doesn't seem like it's the same thing. Yeah, no. Netflix is very good about, like, I, I was very impressed. They have many what they call quality of experience metrics. So they'll watch to see from the time you press play till you get your first video, how long does that take? Uh, how often does it stall? How often do you have to lower the bit rate or, or increase the bit rate? What, what, how, what quality of video are you watching? And is, is that consistently a high level of, of quality? Tim so they, they, they spend a lot of time and energy monitoring and making sure that you get a good quality of experience. Tim Brack, Associate Professor of Computer Science at the University of Waterloo. There you go. So when you watch Netflix tonight, and we know you will, uh, everyone listening can say, look, it was a Canadian idea, Canadian brain power that actually made this not drive us nuts. We can watch this seamlessly and feel good about it. Uh, and that's who you were just hearing right there, whose idea it was. Tim Brack, thanks for doing this. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. It's, uh, it's I mean, look, it's, it's one of those things that it's way, way, way too intelligent for me. I talk on the radio and write in the newspaper. I don't do science. I'm not bright enough to do science. But when science works, when something like this can be applied practically, and you realize, and you look at other places, and you go, oh, that doesn't work so well. And then you look at this one, you go, that looks great. Look, when was the last time Netflix ever went nuts on you? It doesn't. It's a great algorithm. The only time you don't notice, the only time you would notice his work is when you notice it, if you know what I mean. When it doesn't work, you'll notice that his work isn't working, which tells you how good his work was when it was working. Got me? The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.